This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Connecticut State Representative and Deputy House Majority Leader James Albus. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning re-election. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So despite a very close gubernatorial race, Connecticut Democrats gained a trifecta that's pretty strong, increasing their majority in the House and gaining a majority from the tied state Senate. What does that mean for our state? Well, first of all, it reverses a trend of uh, Democrats losing seats in both chambers ever since I was first elected in 2011. Uh, We did really well in the first Obama election. Uh, I think the House was up to uh, 114 Democrats and the Senate was at 24 Democrats. Uh, That's 114 out of 151 and 24 out of 36. So they were uh, essentially veto-proof majorities. Uh, but every year since then, Democrats have steadily lost seats. I think part of it, I think there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. Um, but we also, in 2010, had our first Democratic governor elected in 20 years in Dan Malloy. He, while he's done a, a number of very good progressive things since he has been in office, he has struggled with some budget difficulties. Uh, we've had uh, multi-billion dollar deficits each year since I've been in office. Um, And that's meant we've had to make some really tough decisions at the state level that have affected a lot of people across the state. And uh, Malloy is, as an outgoing governor, is at about a 16% approval rating, which was, uh, you know, once Chris Christie retired, that was the lowest approval rating for a governor in the country. And so I think, you know, Democrats were were nervous about the prospects of 2018. And and thankfully, uh, across our state, we saw the, the blue wave really lift up. Uh, some candidates who were working hard in really tough districts to to make sure that uh, that we have a democratic majority uh, in both chambers and a democratic governor going forward. So I, I think what it says is Connecticut still believes that progressive policies are the way to go. They they believe that when we talk about the budget this year, we need to base it on our our values, which are protecting people who need the most help, uh, creating a fairer tax structure and creating an economy that works for everybody and not just uh, those at the top. Obviously, those are a few of the priorities. What bills are you hoping to push through this legislative session? And how confident do you feel about the Democrats' ability to pass them? Let me uh, preface this by saying I was recently elected to be a co-chair of the Progressive Democratic Caucus in the the House of Representatives. And we we represent about half of the entire uh, House Democratic Caucus, which I think is a great uh, number. And we are holding a press conference uh, this week to talk about three major bills that that we feel uh, deserve a a, a public hearing and deserve a vote in in both the House and Senate. And these are three bills that we've been working on for a number of years and haven't been able to get over the finish line. I think their chances are, are increased because of our margins. Uh, the, those three bills are, number one, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. We were the first state uh, in the country to go over $10 an hour 
but that was several years ago. And uh, even so, um, the $10 went into effect January 1st, 2017, and we haven't seen an increase in the minimum wage since then. So uh, we have a bill to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour over the next four and a half years to be in line with Massachusetts, our, our neighboring state, which has already gotten to uh, legislation getting to 15 by, I believe, 2024, uh, 2023 or 2024. So we, we're mirroring the bill to, to be right along with them. Uh, another piece of legislation that we'll be introducing is a, a paid family medical leave program for the state of Connecticut. Again, this is something that we've been working on for years. Uh, we have a great coalition of, of uh, advocacy organizations, legislators, uh, concerned citizens that have been uh, working on implementing this program. I think we have a real shot to do this this year. And uh, again, it, we're, we're one of our only one of the only states in New England, and and uh, you know we've got neighboring New York that has uh, implemented a, a paid family medical leave program. We're we're behind the eight ball on this, uh, so I think we have a real good chance of, of passing this in Connecticut. Uh, and the other, the third bill is regulating uh, the adult use of marijuana. Uh, Massachusetts just opened its uh, doors to uh, sales of marijuana to, to adults. And I think this is something that you know, the public has been asking for. I think it's time that all the science suggests that the impact of marijuana is less harmful than alcohol. So why are we treating it as something that is more harmful? And in many cases, uh, marring the the lives of, of people, especially those of color, who have been arrested for having small amounts of, of this uh, this drug that it is not as harmful as, as alcohol. So I think those are three bills that we have a really good chance of passing. I don't I don't think they're slam dunks because I think we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, but the numbers in the in the House and Senate and and a Democratic governor who's supportive of these issues suggests that we have a real good shot. And does the legalization of marijuana in Connecticut entail expunging the records of individuals convicted on nonviolent marijuana charges? That has been part of the debate in, in the recent past, and, and it's certainly something that I feel very strongly about, and I know many of my colleagues feel very strongly about. So it will be part of the, the debate again this year. I, I, I really hope that it enters into the final bill because I think that's so important. Um, you know, Again, many people, especially those of color, have been disproportionately impacted by having this uh, mark on their records and are unable to get jobs, uh, are unable to find housing uh, because of background checks that, that might reveal this uh, 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 something on their on their record that really is not uh, you know as big a deal as as other crimes and and shouldn't be a disqualifier for getting a job or getting housing. And you mentioned incoming governor Ned Lamont. Do you believe that Ned Lamont and Lieutenant Governor Susan Beiswitz will be strong allies in passing these and other progressive bills? They, they have both certainly talked a lot about these three issues in particular uh, on the campaign trail. So I, I'm confident that uh, they will stand by us, uh, uh, stand by those in the legislature who are working on these issues you know, I'm hopeful that they even put forward bills of their own to to show that these are important issues for them, especially when it comes to um, raising the minimum wage and implementing paid family medical leave. You know, again, something they ran on, something many members in the House and, and Senate ran on, um, and and I think they're, the momentum is there. And these are policies that poll in the 60 to 70 percent range with members of the public in Connecticut. So these are not only political winners. But they're, uh, they're really important policies that will actually help people. 
And looking a bit at your electoral history, in 2016, you won by just 11 votes. In 2018, you won with almost 60% of the vote. You do come from a relatively conservative town where the police department was targeted by the United States Justice Department for its treatment of Latinx individuals. What changed in terms of your candidacy, your time in office, how did you switch from winning from 11 votes to almost 60%? And how do you go about being a progressive representing this conservative town that does have a history to this day of racial injustice? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Jordan. Um, so I'll, I'll do my best to, to answer all those questions um, uh, in detail. So first of all, you know, my, my family has been very active in, in politics in, in my town, East Haven, Connecticut, for a number of years. Um, my, my father was uh, a town attorney in, in the mid-90s and, uh, and then ran himself for judge of probate, which is an elected position here in Connecticut. <clears throat> and I, I helped run his campaigns when he was running. My mother was a, 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 a school teacher, taught at uh, East Haven High School, uh, but before she taught at East Haven High, she took 10 years off to raise me and my uh, younger brother and sister. And at that time, she ran for the Board of Ed and served a term on the Board of Education uh, in town. Uh, so my family has a long history of being involved in our community and trying to, to uh, uh, make it better. And uh, I think I've benefited from the, the capital that, that my parents and, and also my grandfather, who is a pediatrician, built up uh, within the community. Um, and, you know, I, I worked hard myself uh, to make a name for make a name on my own. Uh, I worked on campaigns myself and, and uh, I served the, the community as our community development coordinator um, for working for the municipality before I ra ever ran for office. Um, and, you know, historically, I'd enjoyed pretty sizable victories. And uh, there are, uh, I think, Democrats outnumber Republicans almost two to one uh, in, in my district. But that doesn't really tell the whole story. Um, this is a district that voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 and completely shifted direction and voted for Donald Trump in, in 2016. Uh, so I think we have, in, a, in many ways, a lot of similarities with uh, areas in the Rust Belt uh, and the Midwest that are <clears throat> blue collar communities. Uh, historically, we are uh, a heavy Italian immigrant community. Um, uh, we have a, a lot of union members. We have uh, construction workers, police officers, teachers, uh, firefighters, um, postal workers. Uh, a lot of folks, uh, blue collar folks live in, in the district. And I think they've, uh, they, for one reason or another, and, and I, you know, I, I tend to disagree about some of these reasons, they decided that Donald Trump was the, the best choice for them. Uh, in 2016, and they they actually voted for the Republican gubernatorial candidate in 2018. Um, but I feel like when I'm out on the campaign trail, when I'm out, um, you know, talking to to my constituents, uh, talking about the issues that I'm working on, if I'm talking about them in a progressive frame, people buy into them, right? People are frustrated because our tax code is unfair. Uh, Connecticut is more heavily reliant on property taxes than almost every other state in the country. And I talked a lot about trying to reform that because property taxes are the biggest tax bill that most Connecticut families and certainly most families in my district uh, pay every year. Um, so reforming the tax code was a huge uh, 
piece of discussion that worked with my constituents, talking about protecting the rights of workers, uh, protecting collective bargaining, advocating for paid sick leave and raising the minimum wage and paid family medical leave. Uh, these are things that really resonate with people because they feel like they don't have a fair shot at work. And when they see uh, you know, towns on the Gold Coast in Fairfield County, uh, folks doing really well there, they're wondering why that's not happening uh, here in, in, in East Haven. And when I talk about these things, I always talk about it from the, the worker's perspective and how we're trying to lift everybody up, give everybody more opportunities. And frankly, I, I don't think that uh, either party has done a, a great job um, in terms of pushing these policies forward at the state level. I think uh, in this time when Democrats have been losing seats, a lot of Democrats in Connecticut have been going more toward the center. And that's been... Uh, in, in some ways detrimental to uh, us getting uh, our message out there and, and making people feel like they can trust uh, Democrats when they put them in office. I'm hoping that we had a great crop of candidates uh, this year that will help turn the tide, uh, talking about paid family medical leave, talking about raising the minimum wage, being uh, good progressives in districts where you know typically Republicans have won for, for a long time. So I, I think the tide is turning and I think uh, it, it's true, not just for me, but for all Democrats, that if we talk about issues with a progressive frame uh, that we're out there to help the worker, uh, we, we, we win. So that's, that's kind of my philosophy for my district. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And you mentioned taxation as a really big issue. There's a lot of controversy, conflicting narratives about taxes in our state. The popular conservative narrative is that our state is struggling because of high tax rates. So they definitely do not want to raise taxes on the wealthy. What is your take on this? And what does equitable taxation look like for progressives? Well, we have a, a top income tax rate that is below New York. Uh, below Rhode Island, uh, uh, higher than Massachusetts, I'll, I'll give you that. But it, it's it's competitive with our surrounding districts or surrounding states, and we have room to to move on it. You know, the the popular narrative that people are going to uh, move, that wealthy people are going to move and and take their tax dollars with them, uh, is just simply untrue. Uh, we've seen 
more millionaires and billionaires move into the state of Connecticut since 2011 when, when Dan Malloy uh, came into office and we raised taxes on the wealthy twice, <laughs> again, still below some of our neighboring states, we've seen more millionaires and billionaires move in. So it, it, that's just a false argument in my mind. The people who are really struggling are the middle class, the working poor who face a, a tax burden that is greater than the tax burden that w- the wealthiest in our state face. I mean, so the Department of Revenue Services did a uh, tax incident study back in December of 2014 to analyze how every income level household was affected by our state and local taxes. And what they found was not surprising. They found that people who make less than $48,000 a year, families that make less than $48,000 a year, pay anywhere from 15 to 25% of their income in taxes. Folks who are in the middle class pay anywhere from 10 to 15%, and the wealthiest in our state pay only 5 or 6% of their income in taxes. So our tax code is incredibly uh, backwards. And you know, I think fixing it, a more progressive and equitable taxation framework would look like a property tax reform so that we don't burden middle class and working poor and certainly uh, our urban areas like New Haven, Hartford, and Bridgeport that have the highest mill rates and thus the highest property taxes in the state as, as having being kind of uh, barriers to growth, not only for households, but also for businesses to come in and, 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 uh, and start their, their business and hire people uh, in urban areas where, frankly, most people want to live, uh, especially uh, millennials. So I think property tax reform has to be a key part of that. I think we can uh, look at raising the top income tax rate to still stay competitive uh, in line with New York, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. We could raise capital gains to, to be in line with those states as well. And maybe look to lower some other taxes across the board that affect everybody, like like sales taxes. Um, there, there's been some discussion about broadening broadening the sales tax base, getting rid of some exemptions, and lowering the overall rate. Uh, that's a little bit more politically difficult, and it's not clear if that's always regressive or progressive. Uh, but these are things that I think we really need to be talking about if we're uh, if we're, we want to be serious about uh, equitable taxation and revamping our tax code. And how do you think tolls factor into this? You know, that's a that's a good question. The, the, here's the problem, right? That, that tolls are trying to solve. Um, our special transportation fund, which is the uh, pot of money that pays for uh, transportation infrastructure projects, road repairs, rail uh, investments, bus bus line investments, that is projected to go into deficit in just a couple of years. Um, and, and the main reason is because the gas tax is bringing in less money now. Uh, than it did 25 years ago when it was lower. And that's for a few reasons, one of which is people are driving more fuel-efficient cars. Another is that people uh, tend to drive less. Um, they're working from home. Uh, they're finding other uh, ways to get to work. So we're, we're at a point where we're not going to be able to pay for the simple simple maintenance if we don't do something drastic. And And we're putting $250 million from our general fund into the special transportation fund now just to keep it breaking even. That's why tolls have been on the table. I think tolls are generally regressive. Um, so what I have said on the campaign trail is we need to make sure that we're implementing them if we have to do so in a way that's fair to Connecticut residents and fair to uh, people who uh, are in the middle class and, and are working poor. And And what I mean by that is we should create a Connecticut easy pass to give Connecticut residents a, a discount, create further discounts for people who have 
a, a long drive to and from work every day. And I've been pushing to completely eliminate the gas tax. You know, it, revenues will, will continue to decline from the gas tax, especially in the next five to 10 years when you see a greater proliferation of electric vehicles. It's a, it's a tax that people pay all the time. Hopefully that will keep things even for Connecticut residents. You know, I'm, I'm very concerned about the regressivity of, of tolls, but in order to make sure that we have enough money to continually repair our roads, we, we need to do something. Um, and I think with our current structure where we have uh, no tolls whatsoever uh, and so many people from out of state driving through Connecticut, especially during the summer months, they probably don't even gas up in Connecticut. They're probably not paying a dime to use our roads and then just driving through using Connecticut as a throughway. Tolls would actually ensure that out-of-state residents are paying to use our roads. And it's the burden isn't solely on Connecticut residents. So I think tolls are a bit more complicated uh, than meets the eye, but there, I'm sure there's a way to do so in an equitable manner. And you mentioned millennials wanting to live in urban areas of the state. And if you paid attention to what candidates were saying this election cycle, Republicans and Democrats alike were talking about the out-migration rate. Young folks are heading out of state for jobs and opportunities, and there isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all easy solution here. How do you think the legislature should address this problem? How can we keep young people in our state? Well, I, frankly, I, I think property taxes is, is, is right at the top of the list. You look at Hartford and New Haven, for example. Those are two communities, uh, two municipalities that have exorbitantly high property taxes because of the high level of non-taxable property that exists in, 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 uh, in each of their cities, right? Hartford has a lot of state buildings. It has a lot of hospital buildings um, that are, are just not on the tax rolls. And what that means is they're forced to raise their uh, mill rate to make up for the loss in taxable property. New Haven has Yale, which takes up a ton of real estate and uh, all of their property is non-taxable. They, they make a, a modest donation to the city, but it's nothing uh, where uh, nothing compared to what they would be paying uh, if they were a, a taxable entity. You know, I think New Haven's a good example where it's a, it's a college town. It should be a place where uh, there are a lot of business incubators. Uh, there are a lot of young people that want to be involved, uh, but the cost of living is is too high to as compared to the surrounding areas to really encourage uh, people to to set roots there. Um, many people want to live in the suburbs like Hamden or Brantford or Guilford um, as opposed to living in the city. And I, so I think it's it's property taxes that's a huge one. I think looking forward and investing in uh, and making it creating an environment where technologies of the future uh, can thrive. Um, you know we're really highly dependent on kind of legacy industries like gambling, insurance, uh, aerospace manufacturing. Those are not really going anywhere, but. At the same time, we've been so dependent on them that we haven't really thought to the future to, you know, what's the next thing that Connecticut can, can do well? Uh, where can we go from here? Um, and, and so I think we, we really need to have some foresight uh, and thoughtfulness when it comes to, you know, fostering a, a, an environment that could be good for business. I mean, talk about making one gigabit broadband more accessible, right? That, that could draw people that we can't even think of yet draw industries that we don't even know exist yet, simply because we'd be able to provide the type of regulatory framework and, and opportunity uh, that 
other jurisdictions might not be on the forefront of. So I, I think those are the kind of solutions that we really need to uh, to encourage more young people to be here. I mean, look, we, we have a great education system. Our schools are some of the best in the country. Uh, that's a huge plus for young families. And, and actually, we do see you know 30 to 45 uh, age range moving into Connecticut. And I, I would suspect it's for that reason. But we could utilize that good education system to try to keep more of those people here. Um, utilizing our community colleges and our state schools to train people for the jobs that you know UTC will be hiring for. Uh, that maybe some company that uh, wants to utilize one gigabit broadband uh, would, would want to utilize. Many companies are looking for people with very specific sets of skills. And the more we can partner with these companies to train Connecticut residents to fit those needs, I think that it's going to leave us better off in the long run. And lastly, how can folks stay in touch with you and where can they find you online? If you go to my website, if you search for um, Representative James Albus, you, you can find my email address and my office phone number. On Facebook, you could find me at facebook.com slash repalbus. That's A-L-B-I-S. I, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can send me an email at james.albus at cga.ct.gov. That's CGA as in Connecticut General Assembly. Um, I, I'd love to hear from folks. Uh, you know, We're, we're going to have a lot of important debates coming up, including the three bills that I mentioned earlier, $15 minimum wage, paid family medical leave, regulating the adult use of marijuana. We want to make sure we have public support behind us. We know what the polls say. We know the polls say that these are winning issues. These are issues that the public is behind. But that often doesn't necessarily translate to the debate going on at the legislature. So the more that we can have people engage in the process, we'll have public hearings for each of these bills. Uh, if you reach out to me, I can keep you posted on, on when those will be um, so that we can get good crowds there, get people engaged in the political process. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today and telling us about the progressive priorities of Connecticut. And we hope to get you on later to talk about how those priorities are coming along. Yeah, that'd be great, Jordan. Please stay in touch. Absolutely. Now, to our listeners, Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.